0: The power of great art is its ability to reframe reality. It can shake us loose from our cemented beliefs and offer new perspectives. And that's exactly what M.A. Césaire does in his 1950 essay, Discourse on Colonialism.
1: Discourse on Colonialism is this, you know, essay manifesto shot through with poetry, very intellectual, very historical, very clearly um, an intellectual diatribe against colonialism. My name is Kayama Glover. I'm a professor of French and Africana studies at Barnard College at Columbia University.
0: In the 16th century, France began establishing colonies around the world. They justified their brutal imperialism by claiming that they were civilizing savage peoples. But Césaire saw through their lies. In discourse on colonialism, he exposed the truth.
1: This is an extraordinarily poetic text. the, the way it's written, that it is it is sing songy. There is repetition. There is rhetorical flourish. There is um, asked and answer, call and response. He, it's it's not a stodgy um, colonialism is bad historically in the present moment, and this is why it is a call to arms that, like, so um, um, poignantly interpolates the reader by the sheer beauty of its style, um, that it's worth noting, um, and, and, and really, you know, for listeners thinking, oh, I, you know, I'll figure out it to read this anti colonial anti-capitalist text that's probably, probably, you know, really smart and stuff. But what I can promise is an exciting read, like it's an enjoyable, beautiful text to read.
0: Welcome to Writ Large, a podcast about how books change the world. I'm Zachary Davis, in each episode, I talk with one of the world's leading scholars about one book that changed the course of history. For this episode, I sat down with Professor Kayama Glover to discuss Emma Cesaire's Discourse on Colonialism. Emma Cesaire grew up on the island of Martinique in the Caribbean.
1: So he's born in 1913 um, to a black Caribbean family, um, a sort of, I'd say, middle class in contemporary parlance family, but definitely on the lower socioeconomic scale, so threatened by poverty in his youth. His father um, and mother were both employed and educated, um, but he was not necessarily um, of the class that would have been expected to have a fancy future, let's put it that way. Nonetheless, he was a brilliant, brilliant student and stood out and was rewarded for that under the colonial education system by being granted a scholarship to pursue his studies
0: in 1931, 18-year-old Césaire left Martinique and headed to Paris to continue his studies under this scholarship.
1: And enrolled in the École Normale Supérieure, which is a very prestigious secondary education institution. And um, this would be like getting into Harvard or Oxford. It was definitely the, um, the good student's path and a very prestigious, prestigious and auspicious beginning to his, his, his life as an adult.
0: Césaire was one of many students who were offered this type of scholarship from the French government. At the time, France had colonies around the world in present-day countries such as Vietnam, Senegal, Algeria, the French West Indies, and Canada. The French government handpicked the best and the brightest students from these colonies and offered them similar scholarships. Césaire was one of the students they picked from Martinique. So he gets to Paris
1: and enrolls in this course of study in this very prestigious institution where he's really being anchored in French literature and culture and history and and getting Frenchity-French-French-French and then meets all of these other students from other parts of the empire.
0: The French government wanted to unite their colonies around the world under one French identity. Through this scholarship program, they were attempting to replace these students' pre-French identities with a new French one. They tried to present French culture as superior to these colonies' native cultures. But France's attempts at instilling a unified identity were not entirely successful.
1: What Césaire discovers upon arriving in Paris and meeting these other brown and Black intellectuals is that kind of the bill of sale he's had going during his colonial education, notably the idea that Africa is uncivilized, that colonialism was a gift, that Martinicans and Caribbean folks are in a better position than their savage and uncivilized African brothers, he, it, the lie is exposed because he does, in effect, meet these brilliant and dynamic and fascinating characters from all over the French Empire. So in bringing together all of these people in Paris, the stage is set for this kind of realization among the best and the brightest who are saying, wait, hold on, I call I call untruth um, to this narrative.
0: Césaire became close with two other like minded students. One was the poet Léon Damas, who Césaire knew in Martinique. And the other was writer and poet Leopold Sedar Sanger, who eventually became president of Senegal.
1: And the three of them together start thinking, OK, so up till now, we've been sort of immersed in this lie that's been told to us by uh, for the French colonial authorities via, you know, via the construct of education. Um, and... This is something that is unacceptable and that we need to think about and think vocally and expressly about and moreover that we need to write about. And so he gets there in 1931 and by 1935, he has fallen in with this crowd of brilliant scholars, intellectuals, and now activists um, and starts a journal. It only has one issue, but it's an important one. In 1935, it's called L'étudiant Noir, The Black Student. Um, And it's in this issue that Aimé Césaire uses for the first time. Uh, the word negritude. And as you can hear in the word negritude, it takes this word negra, which is kind of a colonial epithet, a pejorative term that was used uh, to describe Black people and turns it into a positive, essentially a, a an aesthetic, a philosophy um, that combines black, black is beautiful with Black power with Um, the idea of an African diaspora, but essentially the notion that there is no superiority of white European culture and civilization, and that it is well time to turn inward and to think about what Africa has contributed to Caribbean being, uh, to the global world order, et cetera. So this this revolution, this kind of intellectual and artistic revolution that happens in Paris among um, black men from the French empire.
0: Who was reading these writings about negritude and um, how did it start to spread among other thinkers and intellectuals in some of the, the colonial territories? So a few
1: things. So one, there is, as I said, the sort of intellectual scene happening in Paris in the 1930s where you have these students from Martinique especially, um, but also from sub-Saharan West Africa that are finding themselves in the hallowed halls of the French uh, higher education system and are hanging out together, who are in the cafes and in the salons and smoking cigarettes and having drinks and going to Caribbean dance halls together and really... um, coming to an, into a state of, of consciousness together about who they are. And I think most importantly, in sort of a precursor sort of way to Pan-Africanism, recognizing that there's more that unites them than, than divides them. So that's one incredibly important thing that's happening um, around the time of the uh, emergence of Negritude in the 30s. Um, a second thing that's happening um, is I guess you could call it the fact of Haiti.
0: Haiti was an example of a nation that broke free from French colonialism, but ultimately paid a heavy cost for doing so. Europeans began settling Haiti as early as the 15th century. By the mid-17th century, it was a French colony. It soon became France's most profitable and most valuable colony and earned the nickname the Pearl of the Antilles.
1: It produced you know, upwards of 90% of the world's sugar, some enormous percent of the world's coffee, tobacco, cotton, all of these, um, these crops, all of these commodities that had become incredibly valuable on the global market. And that put French in the position of being the dominant imperial power, sort of neck and neck with, with the United Kingdom, with Great Britain at the time.
0: Like colonizers around the world, the French enslaved the local population and forced them to work on their plantations. But the French enslavers in Haiti were particularly vicious. It was so
1: brutal and so deadly to the enslaved population that the determination had been made that it was more capitally uh, expeditious to work slaves quickly to death than it would have been to um, keep them alive, allow them to reproduce, establish conditions wherein a uh, an indigenous. Uh, enslaved population could grow. And the reason that's important is an enormous percentage of the enslaved population in Haiti at the time was young, was male, and remembered freedom, right? This was not a population that had been born into enslavement. And so what that meant is that um, over time, and with the demographics being what they were, meaning an enormous majority of Black enslaved, uh, nearly African people, a thin layer of mixed race people, so to speak, and um, uh, what you would call petits blancs, or which are like kind of uh, lower class whites, and then an even thinner layer of colonial planters, many of whom didn't necessarily live in the colonies or back and forth, meant that you had this overwhelming majority of kind of barely enslaved and brutalized population um, that was able to come to political consciousness.
0: In the late 18th century, the Haitian revolutionaries assembled under the guidance of a free black Haitian general named Toussaint Louverture. But meanwhile, back in France, another revolution was brewing. Many people across Europe were giving serious thought to human rights and individual liberty. The old monarchical systems of government were under examination. In France, the lower classes were rising up to the aristocracy and monarchy. They wanted liberty, equality, and democracy. These revolutionary ideals spread throughout the French Empire and into the colonies.
1: So this is all kind of this powder keg of various political and socio-demographic factors that are coming together, such that you end up with the um, outbreak of the Haitian Revolution in 1791. The coming piggybacking let's say on the outbreak of the French Revolution in 1789, you have this key moment in 1794 where slavery is actually outlawed and um, we have the sense that things are sort of going to right themselves. Now at this point Toussaint Louverture is not looking for independence in the late 18, in in the late 1790s and even into up till 1802. What he's looking for is a measure of sovereignty within the French Empire, right? So to enjoy the rights and privileges of Frenchness without, without slavery.
0: But it didn't work out that way. France at this point was in the middle of two revolutions, the Haitian Revolution and the French Revolution. Towards the end of the French Revolution, the revolutionaries overthrew the monarchy and established their own government. But this was short-lived. The French military leader, Napoleon Bonaparte, overthrew the revolutionary government and became emperor of France in 1799. Napoleon wanted to keep Haiti as a French colony, so he captured Toussaint Louverture and sent him to a French prison, where he died. In 1802, Napoleon reinstated slavery in the French colonies. At first, it looked like Napoleon's plan was going to succeed.
1: He was able to do so in Martinique, he was able to do so in Guadeloupe, he was able to do so in Guyana, but he was not able to do so in Haiti. And there was all out continuation of the war under a new general under the name, uh, by the name Jean-Jacques Dessalines. And this time it was not going to be a battle for some sort of negotiated freedom with France. It was for the, the whole shebang. It was for absolute sovereignty of an independent French state.
0: The revolution was successful and on January 1st, 1804, Haiti declared its independence from France. This was a huge threat to European colonialism.
1: As you can well imagine, a free black republic in the middle of an enslaved hemisphere was a deeply uh, avant-garde and problematic entity, uh, which meant that France and the United States would then go ahead and do all in their power uh, to contain that revolution um, in by all means, any means necessary. So that meant... um, several things that meant uh, commercial isolation, right? So kind of, we're gonna starve you out or we're gonna reduce the possibility to engage in trade relations that would sustain this independent nation. It meant military threat, French warships just outside of Haiti, that were put there um, to make the point that Haitian independence would not be acknowledged until, and this was a a, um, plan that was negotiated as late as 1825, until a debt of 150 million francs was paid by the new nation to France to indemnify the planters for lost property. And that lost property included land and obviously slaves. And then it also meant kind of a narrative creation of Haiti as a cautionary tale for what happens when Black people try to rule themselves. Mm -hmm. And so what that means is a place like Martinique, where Césaire is from, part of this kind of colonial education is about Vilifying Haiti, about making an example of Haiti, of, well, you may think you have it bad as a colony of the French Empire, but it could be worse. Look what's going on in Haiti. And in effect, at first glance, you have this sense of a banana republic that got independence but hasn't been able to make it work, a narrative that kind of conveniently overlooks the extent to which the wider world was absolutely insistent on the failure of that that Black Republic. Um, But people like Amy Césaire would not have been duped by. Um, this kind of narrative
0: over a century after haiti gained its independence from france the united states began to occupy haiti the haitian president was assassinated in 1915 and the u.s entered haiti to restore political and economic stability and remained there until 1934. this was all happening during cesaire's life up through his education in paris cesaire like many other students and people living under french rule at the time grew up with this haitian narrative as a cautionary tale
1: And so at the time of Césaire's arrival in France, um, you have this sort of um, incredibly poignant and despicable reassertion of, or like a reinvestment in colonialism that's happening in a country that for all of its, um, you know, arguably dystopian failures since the 19th century revolution, nonetheless stood out as an example of the possibility of black sovereignty right, in the wake of slavery and colonialism. So to have that be being crushed and oppressed by a new imperial powder, power, notably the U.S., um, is something that's in the hearts, the minds, and in the elect- intellectual thinking of um, these these students in, in, uh, in France.
0: What happened in the 19th century up until the 30s in terms of colonial resistance?
1: There is not any moment in that time that was not... Violently, adamantly anti-colonial. Not any one like you can't find a moment in any part of any of the colonial world that was not in constant refusal and resistance of what had had happened. The example of Haiti. Then again, the resistance to the American occupation that happens in nineteen in the nineteen fifteen through nineteen twenty period in in Haiti. Um, in addition to punctual revolution uh, anti-colonial moments throughout. Both the British and the French Empire um, are going to mark, are going to make plain from beginning to end the extent to which colonialism has to constantly perform acrobatics to assert itself—rhetorical acrobatics, intellectual, moral, governmental acrobatics—in order to convince itself in the world of its legitimacy.
0: Two years after Césaire and his fellow students published their journal called *The Black Student*, he got married. And then two years after that, in 1939, he moved with his wife back to Martinique and began teaching at the prestigious French high school he himself had attended.
1: He's there in 1939 with his his wife and and their child at the time. Um, And while he's there, he founds a literary journal called Topique with two other intellectuals which was essentially, uh, it runs from 1941 to 1945, so exactly uh, during the time of the war. And it, this journal uh, does a couple of things. It kind of puts into practice the idea of, um, of negritude as a point of departure for kind of both his- at once historical, um, cultural, social, and political Uh, organization among Black people in the Americas and more broadly.
0: Césaire had to be careful with what he published because at the time, Martinique was occupied by France, which was occupied by Hitler and the Nazis. In a way, Hitler was doing to Europe what Europe was doing to their colonies. Because of Hitler's occupation in France, the media in Martinique was heavily monitored.
1: The other thing that happens in this, this period of the late 1930s into the 1940s is he writes his masterwork, arguably what's his masterwork, which is called Le d'un Retour au Pays Natal, The Notebook of a Return to My Native Land, which is this extraordinary prose poem, maybe about 50 pages long.
0: In addition to his journals and political writings, Césaire was also an accomplished poet.
1: He publishes this poem, which essentially becomes the uh, the rallying cry and the most heartfelt expression of of negritude, of global blackness, and I'd say of, of thinking about um, black victimization and marginalization as a phenomenon that both is and isn't about race. Um, so negritude literally has the word black in it, um, but this poem makes plain. That negritude is a mantle that can be borne by um, by Jews persecuted by Hitler, by Kafirs being persecuted by the South African government, by any uh, by by Dalit in India. That it is um, the mantle that can be worn by people who are per- persecuted um, by white supremacy, by Western Europe, by bourgeois capitalism. Um, in ways that do and do not have to do with with, with blackness. Um, so in this sense, his writings during the 1930s and 40s are are really pivotal and foundational to global black studies and to post-colonial studies today. By
0: 1945, Césaire's journal had been shut down by the government, but he continued writing. Around this time, Césaire met another highly influential person, the French surrealist poet André Breton.
1: André Breton, who, like so many other intellectuals, intellectuals, has fled uh, Vichy France, uh, finds himself in the Caribbean, finds himself in Martinique at a point and um, discovers, right, in in that weird sense of the term, discovers uh, Aimé Césaire and falls in love with his work and declares him, you know, the greatest French black poet.
0: This was a crucial moment because through Breton, Césaire was able to join the white anti-colonial movement.
1: Black people can rage against the machine as much as they like, but it really gets the ball rolling when you have white intellectuals in and, and and activists on your side.
0: Breton helped Césaire establish his name in the white intellectual world, and it enabled him to go to Haiti.
1: And he goes to Haiti with his wife, Suzanne, for a period of about six weeks in 1944, so still during the war, where he gives a bunch of lectures to um, Haitian students there, um, all of which turn on the extent to which poetry and sort of political consciousness go hand in hand.
0: Césaire's time in Haiti would prove incredibly influential. Haiti's president at the time was a man named Elie Lescaut. He was essentially a dictator and he was supported by the United States. He ruled Haiti with force and intimidation and heavily censored the media. Césaire's lectures inspired many students to become more politically conscious. Two years after he left Haiti, a number of the students he taught were part of a massive student strike.
1: That becomes a national strike that within a period of uh, five days in January of 1946 overthrows The dictatorial government in Haiti, and they do so declaring the allegiance of surrealism and communism as their kind of their 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 uh, their mantra, their their motive force, and their call to arms. So there's this incredible like series of dominoes that lead from this this poet uh, in Martinique to a revolution that happens in in Haiti, um, all during the period of and after the Second World War in Europe.
0: The pen is mightier than the sword. That is amazing.
1: It's a fascinating, fascinating history. This other thing happens. While that revolution is happening in 1946 in Haiti, a kind of different, a little bit opposite thing is happening thanks to Aimé Césaire in Martinique in 1946. We've got the Second World War... France is essentially on its knees. We've got the United Nations, which is formed in 1945, essentially saying colonialism has to end after this war. France is super nervous in 1945 that it'll have to give up its colonies. So it goes on this campaign of, of kind of seduction of the soon to be former colonies by saying, hey, so listen, um, sorry about some of the stuff that happened with slavery and colonialism, but here's what we are, we're offering why don't we rethink this and rejigger this relationship and create what we're going to call the french union or franc afrique or something along that. like you know we can work on the t- on the label but the, basically the ideal would be we'll still be united and we'll still sort of be in charge but you guys will be sovereign like you'll be sovereign within our empire let's figure out a relationship that means you're you still belong to us but we're not going to treat you like second class citizens
0: At this point, France had colonies in Africa, Southeast Asia, and the Caribbean. By 1954, North Vietnam gained its independence from France. The majority of France's colonies among the African nations did not want to stay under France's rulership. And by 1960, all of France's colonies in Africa were independent.
1: But what happens in 1946 in Martinique is that uh, Aimé Césaire um, believes that this is possible. And he negotiates a transformation of Martinique from a, de, uh, a colony of France into what's called a Department of France, which it remains to this day, Martinique, Guadeloupe, and a few other former French colonies. Um, this is part of what's understood to be um, the, or has long been understood to be the unfortunate legacy of Amy Césaire, but has more recently been recognized as essentially the only thing that he could have done at that time
0: Martinique's economy was so devastated by colonialism that in a way, they saw this was their only hope. By this point, Césaire's name was well-established in the political world, and the new Martinique government offered Césaire a position.
1: And it made uh, Césaire the mayor of Fort-de-France as of, uh, which is the capital of Martinique, as of, of 1945 and an elected official in the French National Assembly, um, etc. He ultimately became the head of the French Communist Party in Martinique until he broke with the Communist Party in 1956 over communist racism, at which point he founded um, the Progressive Party at Martinique, which he was the leader of until, I believe, his death.
0: Césaire first published his essay, Discourse on Colonialism, with a small French publisher in 1950 in Paris. Five years later, he further edited the essay and republished with the anti-colonial publishing house, Présence Africaine. Let's now talk about uh, discourse on colonialism. Um, what What is he arguing and how does he make these arguments?
1: Well, he's arguing from in an explicitly anti-colonial stance to, to start there, right? It's not some sort of neutral history or account of colonialism. It's a text that's meant to be adamant and radically opposed to the colonial project.
0: Many of Césaire's earlier writings were geared towards those who were being colonized by France. But he wrote this text specifically for the French. What he
1: is essentially arguing is that there's no decoupling of capitalism and colonialism, or specifically racial capitalism and colonialism, and that these two things are in fact incompatible with the very idea of the civilizing mission that arguably
0: undergirds the colonial project, right? I'd love to know, especially this idea of um, the civilizing mission and like how that was articulated, Um, because what's so powerful about Cesare's journey is that he sort of bought into it was the star of the civilizing mission goes over and then sees that it was hollow the whole time. So how would you characterize how, Europeans as a whole, maybe even the French empire in particular, was um, was describing their motivations regarding their colonies in the, let's say, height of their empire. The short and pithy answer would be, you know,
1: racism. <laughs> racism is this, this beautifully elastic concept that really, in the end, allows for the justification of um, actions that One might otherwise call out for what they are, which is exploitative, abusive, um, uh, inhuman or anti-humanist. The easiest way to answer that, which is partially an answer, is that capital and its successes don't necessarily need a nice story if they're working well in the sense that, yes, of course, it is great if the horrible things that are being done um, can have some nice packaging around them. But at the end of the day, when France is a growing industrial nation is really in a neck and neck relationship of competition with the UK, um, a lot can can go on without needing a nice narrative to accompany it. So let's let's just say in some ways, um, it's not as hard as one might imagine to out of one side of, of one's national mouth be saying, there's a certain understanding of human rights, brotherhood and universal principles of humanism that we dearly hold to, um, except when it comes to Africans. Um, that's fine, that's, that really is fine. And that has been fine uh, since time immemorial. It has had different iterations, but I don't think that it's 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 lessened as a real factor in, in resolving what might seem to be incommensurable.
0: The other important element was how racism allowed the colonizers to write off people of color as not human or less human.
1: It's a really nice loophole that allows for nations to be completely full-throated in advocating for liberté, égalité, fraternité, liberty, equality, and brotherhood among men, right? Um, And we see the way that among men clause has... um, has existed in relation to women, certainly, um, which is a kind of lesser man. But right, in, in quotes, obviously, obviously. But imagine then um, when we're talking about peoples and ethnicities that don't even make it. You know, they don't get to put their toe on the scale of what actually counts as a species, right, in the human race. And let's not forget that much of the 19th century science, things like phrenology, for example, the measurement of heads and skulls is the, the most well-known example. Much of the 19th century science was about showing uh, black peoples as some sort of missing link between apes and, and, and Europeans and white men, right? And white people. What we shift to, I think, and this is in France as, as elsewhere in, um, in the North Atlantic, what we shift to is the idea of, okay, we may all be humans, but certain kinds of humans, and we can call it race, or we can call it things that are more palatable, like, you know, culture, That these things make those humans incapable of uh, self-control, self-governance, rational thought, all of the things, again, cement uh, the legitimacy of a European project of civilizing, right, that rather than admit to what it is, which is capitalist exploitation, um, leads with its, 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 its prettier face, which is we are here to help. Um, we see a mess and we're going to fix it. Um, and if that comes with some advantages for uh, for France or for Europe more broadly, well, that's great. I mean, after all, who are we? <laughs> but at the same time, um, there's a trade-off because what we're offering right, um, is some measure of compensation for what we're extracting.
0: When Césaire published Discourse on Colonialism, he was able to take advantage of the rawness of Europe in the aftermath of World War II. Europe was no longer the great, civilizing, enlightened continent. Cesaire was able to show the parallels between what happened in World War II and what was happening with European colonialism.
1: So he's writing in this moment following the Second World War, where uh, France in particular and Europe more broadly has been taught something of a lesson um, in in terms of what uh, occupation feels like, what being colonized feels like, and where there was this um, near-miss vis-a-vis Nazism and Hitler and so the, the sort of main thrust and the and, and what I see is and many see is brilliance of this text, is that he 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 um, harnesses that recent memory, right that recent European mem- memory of this near miss of this near very evident uh, degradation and humiliation to insist in discourse on colonialism. Uh, what happened with Adolf Hitler was in fact not an aberration with respect to the Enlightenment come colonial project, but rather it's culminating force. Um, And so with this, this is an incredibly provocative thing to be saying five years after the close of World War II. Um, It's toes right up to the line of, um, you brought this on yourselves, right? He never goes so far as to say this, but what he does do is take the, the space created by France's vulnerability to say, really, let's look at history. And let's look at the treatment of colonized subjects, brown and black and Asian in the Americas, in the Far East, in Latin America, in Africa, et cetera. And let's look practically at what was happening under colonialism and see if we don't notice some similarities to what was happening under um, the Hitlerian project of Nazism. And this is an incredibly, as I said, provocative and um, and uh, risque Narrative to be to be presenting in 1950, and then again in 1955.
0: So after World War II, how how does the discourse of colonialism change? What what were those years after World War II uh, looking like?
1: I mean, I would send you straight to the opening discourse by Charles de Gaulle in 1944 at the conference in Brazzaville, where he gets together um, a group of colonial administrators all white Europeans that come together to puzzle through precisely what you've just asked. Notably, okay, it's 1944. We're meeting here in Brazzaville because, well, (laughs) France is occupied. So that's already saying saying quite a bit, but we're we're meeting here uh, more importantly um, in some ways to think about what our colonial future is going to look like. And so that discourse talks about Colonialism, you know, it had its hiccups, and there were things that were done that very likely shouldn't have been done, but they were done in a spirit of generosity and fellow feeling. They were done to bring a people encased in darkness into light. Um, they were done with the best intentions, apart, as we talked about earlier, for some bad apples that that made the whole thing look bad, perhaps. Um, but it is not only our hope. But it is our obligation not to release our colonies into the wide, wide world of geopolitics. They are not prepared. They are not capable, uh, no more so than they were really since we found them. It is our responsibility to facilitate some sort of transition for them that will involve uh, re-educ- adamant re education, uh, the establishment of clear liaisons between a colonial indigenous elite and French, uh, a French newly or differently colonial power, right? So these were commercial relations, social, political and other relations. In other words, we need to refigure a relationship that we want to remain rooted in the paternalistic ideals of the civilizing mission and colonialism, um, but with, uh, without all of the yuckiness that we now know um, you know, isn't going to work for the second half of the 20th century and beyond because of the whole Hitler situation.
0: So was Césaire's work intended to help colonial subjects say no? H- how much of his intention was to foster this consciousness that you, you are in fact free?
1: There is a way um, in which Césaire holds fast to the belief that um, that the colonial ship can be turned around or at least holds fast to the efficacy of trying to work in that direction as opposed to um, radical independence that would divorce the former colonies from uh, their former imperial uh, rulers. And he, in this respect, is something of a a pragmatist. We have to keep in mind the extent to which the centuries of colonialism had devastated, uh, had absolutely devastated local economies, cultures, ethnicities, tribal relations, uh, understandings of self and of history, I and mean, that it had really done some, you know, not annihilated entirely, but certainly deeply disturbed and, and, yes, devastated. And so the world that Césaire seems to be imagining is a world that requires first acknowledgement of the crime of that, uh, of that project, really importantly, it, it involves having the the, um, the North Atlantic and the former empire recognize what it had done. And I would argue in a really prescient way, he does that so that those sins are not repeated. So there's a way in which discourse on colonialism and Cesaire's attitude more broadly is an appeal to France to do better for
0: the sake of everyone. It does seem that an important part of this text it isn't, it isn't just making a kind of moral claim against racist attitudes, um, but it's, it's looking uh, closely at the role of capitalism in this. And w- what is his argument about the particular way there's exploitative ra- relationships because of, of the racial dimension? He ends with the
1: assertion that um, that civilization as a whole, in the sense, not just a civilization in the neutral sense, but a civilized humanity is 100% incompatible with capitalism. That there is no such thing as a non-exploitative capitalism, that there is no such thing as um, some countries providing resources and labor and others providing management, that that is a system that is absolutely broken and and, and de facto um, not humanist and, 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 and problematic capitalism will capitalize, capitalism will um, transform honest relationships of labor and production into skewed hierarchies, mastery and exploitation. And there's no way around that. And um, if you go through this document, through discourse on colonialism, the buzzwords are there throughout. It's incredibly important. And he hits the note, proletariat, bourgeois, capitalist, um, over and over again, to make clear that Enemy number one for him, and what must be done away with immediately, is is capitalism. Um, if- particularly the kind of capitalism that is coming up through the United States, right? A Kind of undignified steamrolling capitalism that is full with its own successes of um, the recent war and really ready to globalize uh, on a scale that hasn't hasn't been seen. Um, And so he's closing this document by trying to strike the fear of um, one would otherwise say God, but in this case of America, (laughs) into the hearts and minds, again, of the French.
0: Does he have a vision of or a way to organize an economy and a political community that he can articulate? Can he, can he give a name to a way of life that supports that human flourishing in his view?
1: What we have consistently is, um, yes, the condemnation of, of capitalism. That is explicit and clear. Yes, a belief in what he calls in discourse uh, on colonialism uh, um, of anti-capitalism, A N T E, as opposed to A N T I, which he attributes to a um, an African or at least non-white European worldview um, that that preexisted capitalism and that might be a resource for rewriting. Uh, geopolitics in in the coming world, but he doesn't. He's not explicit about it in any way. He, the work that he ends up doing, because he does become a politician, he's mayor. He's then the deputy of the French Communist Party. He then starts his own political party in Martinique. Um, so he is invested in a politics, but in as much as this is a never a politics of uh, explicit independence. Um, it has its limitations in that respect, and B, there is no sort of uh, political agenda that's made uh, made clear beyond radical revolution, um, which is, you know, arguably very much about deconstructing, right? So a process of burning it all down in order to lay the terrain for something else, but that something else is not necessarily articulated with great clarity
0: um, in his work. How did the book land? Um, and and what would you say has been its its legacy? It's at the root of a,
1: a genealogy of anti-colonialism. It's it provides like a theoretical base, a political base, um, and a point of departure for I'd say debates in the present moment about different forms of colonialism and of neocolonialism. Um, about blackness and to what extent blackness is um, a racial category or metaphor for uh, a social class uh, or culture. Um, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's being utilized, it continues to be utilized as a helpful way of thinking about how otherness is constructed, um, even against reason. Right? How? Like, what are the what are the discourses and rhetorics that have to be put into place to justify the things that we were talking about earlier in terms of exploitation and inhumane treatment and inhuman treatment of, of the so called other? Um, so, Césaire, this is not a relic or an artifact um, that's part of a history of anti colonialism. It's very much in the present. It's still discussed. Um, not just within the walls of the academy, I would say, but is it a, it's a familiar text in the realms of activism and well beyond the francophone context. Um, you know, it is a part of Latin American discourses of anti-colonialism as well that happened much later.
0: Cesare passed away in 2008. He was 94 years old. After discourse on colonialism, he continued writing and published many plays, poetry and other post-colonial literature. But this
1: text, this and I'd say two or three of his other texts, but this one really um, stands on its own as Césaire's offering to um, the desire for truly universalist human and global freedom um, to this day. It's wonderful that a poet wrote this influential text because it means that it's a, it's a
0: delight to read. Capitalism has profoundly shaped the world but for a long time, those who benefited most from it ignored the destruction it left in its wake. In Discourse on Colonialism, MA Césaire turned our global gaze away from the mere profit and wonder of capitalism and towards its more brutal realities.
1: It made it possible in such an explicit way for certain lies of imperialism to hold, and the explicitness with which he disconstruct- deconstructed those lies are still deployable today. Like they can, you can still use the words that Césaire gave us. Colonialism does not equal civilization; it equals brutalization and decivilization of the colonized subject and of the colonizer. Right? This idea that it is a perversion of our of our humanity um, had not been said in that way before, and can continue to be said.
0: Rit Large is produced by Jack Pombriant, Liza French, and me, Zachary Davis. Script editing is by Galen Beebe. We get help from Farron Du. Our theme song is by Ian Koss, and our branding is by Dan Petschy. We're a member of LitHub Radio. Writ Large is a Lyceum original production. You can find us on our website, writlarge.fm. There you'll find transcripts, links to the books we discussed, and more information about today's guest. Thanks for listening. See you next time.